Can we pray before we begin tonight? Father, with Lebanon so much on my heart tonight, I would like to bring them before you, Lord. Father, I especially pray for our brothers and sisters in that place. And I ask that your protection will be upon them. That, Father, if they're in danger, you'll tell them to get up and leave their houses. If they're in danger, you'll tell them to get off the street. But that, Father, they might know the guidance of your Holy Spirit. But not just for them. Father, I pray for all the population in Beirut tonight. And, Father, I do ask in the name of Jesus that, Father, you will speak to their hearts as they sit under this threat of death caused by the wickedness of man. And, Father, I ask in Jesus' name that you will pour out your Spirit on that city. May may there be a revival in Beirut in the name of Jesus. Father, we pray for people born again. We pray for people filled with the Holy Ghost in that place. Father, I ask, especially for the children of that city, that you will look after them, Lord, and protect them. Father, we say to you that your will be done in that place. We are conscious that, Father, you have a grand plan that is gradually being worked out in that arena of the earth. Father, we say let your will be done in that place. But, Father, we would bring that city to you and ask you to be merciful to it, Lord. Father, I I ask you to remember the kindness of Hiram, Father, who supplied the wood, the cedars of Lebanon for your temple in Solomon's day. And Father, if for nothing else, for his memory, Father, will you do something for Lebanon at this time? Father, we beseech you in the name of Jesus. And Father, for us in this place, Father, may we see how serious is the task that you've called us to. And Father, I pray as I speak about this wonderful subject tonight, that Father, you will so strengthen us as Christians that we should shine ever more brightly for you. I ask it because I know that your Holy Spirit wants to speak to us tonight. Therefore, I ask you to take my stumbling tongue. Father, take my lips, make them your own tonight, and reveal these deep and wonderful truths that can only be discerned by the Spirit. In the name of Jesus, I would ask it. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we're drawing to the end of this particular course. After tonight, we have only one more Bible study on the character of God. And I I know by this time that you, I'm sure, will accept what I accept about this course, that it is one of the most important courses that I have ever done. And I'll tell you why I think it's so important. Not only, obviously, is it important because it's about him with whom we have to do, But I think it's a course that separates the sheep from the goats among the Church of Jesus Christ. Because at the very beginning of this course, I said that the thing that disturbed me in the Church was how much humanism has come in and how much materialism has come into our faith. So that many, many Christians today are more interested in what God can do for them than in God himself. And I've been horrified, you know, at the thought that people will crowd into a healing meeting because they might get healed, but won't actually come to hear about the healer himself. And I don't know whether you've ever been used by people. Have you ever been used by anyone who didn't really want you for yourself? They wanted you for what they could get out of you. 
Do you know, it makes you feel rather barren and desolate. I've been used many, many times. And always I'm left with this barrenness in my heart, as if, well, that's it, you know, they used me when I'm of use, but now they're all right, they don't need me anymore, and so goodbye, you know, and dump me on one side. And it leaves you with this hollowness. But the thing that horrifies me is that Christians in this day are doing that to the God who has saved them, so that they are more interested in what they can get out of God than really what they can give to him. And I think this course has really been an eye-opener because this hasn't been about what God has done for you. Oh, I've mentioned it in passing. It's been about him. And I've been thrilled. I should admit this to you at this late stage, that this is a course I've put off for many years because I didn't feel I was ready to give this course. It was too big. But you know, I've known God's grace as I've moved through on this subject. And I just praise God as I listen to some of the tapes as I travel in the car, and I just check them over, you know, see if there's any gross error in them. And I've been amazed. At the end of the tape, I've just said, well, Lord, I couldn't have given that. You are the one who's given that. And I've been so conscious of uh, God's supply in everything that I've needed. Now, most of the attributes of God that we've dealt with so far, most of the characteristics that we've dealt with have been fairly well known up to now. I mean, most people, most Christians would know that God is love, that he's holy, that he's omniscient. They may not use that term, but they know what they mean. Omnipresent, omnipotent, eternal. But now we come to a subject tonight that is really neglected. For tonight, I'm going to speak on the subject of God never changes. Or to give it its correct title, the fact that God is immutable, immutable, the immutability of God. Please don't let these words uh, befuzzle you. You know, some people who don't use the word immutable think, oh, I can't understand it. These words are easy once you've heard them. Immutability simply means what I've written on the board, that God never changes. And this is one of those attributes where we have to put it in the negative. It's so alien to us that I can't give you a positive definition. I have to say what it isn't. So I say this. This attribute says that God doesn't change. It doesn't tell you quite what it is, but it does tell you what it isn't. And we have to do this because we know what change is all about, don't we? We do. I'm so sorry about this, you know, but I find I am a changeable person. And I find most of humanity, the humanity I mix with, is changeable. We uh, have our off days. We have our on days, but we have our off days. Um, we age, you know. Have you ever seen a photograph of you dressed up in your favorite dress or your favorite suit of uh, about 15 years ago? Or in a certain hat or something, and you think, how on earth could I ever have worn that? But what's happened? You've changed, and the society in which you live has changed, and now you wouldn't be seen dead in it. Then you could only just... Well, you were dying to put that particular garment on. We live in this constant state of changeability, and we all change, unfortunately, you know? I think, by the way, we Christians ought to be the more stable members of society, but we will see in ourselves this changeability going on. Not only we change, of course, but the whole earth changes constantly, doesn't it? Right? I mean, we have seasons coming in and going out. I'm always amazed when the crocuses come up. We have some beautiful purple crocuses, and I always love them when they come up, and they're the type that open up when the sun's out and close up when the sun goes in. And they're a positive delight. And then they die away, 
and I forget them for the rest of the year, but right on time out they come again. But you see, that's changeability. If you own animals, they change, you know. This little playful kitten, right, that uh, used to bite your finger, suddenly turns into this rather sedate, standoffish uh, moggy. And, and later on, it becomes a fat old thing that lies about on the sofa. And then you're all sad because it dies. But that's changeability, and we're used to it. In Britain, of course, it's the weather that changes, doesn't it? All the time, it's changing. It really is. We have a lot of weather in Britain. <laughs> now, some countries of the world, they don't, you know. The weather is always the same. If in some countries you say, oh, I hope it's going to be hot tomorrow, they'd look at you as if you're mad. And they'd say, of course it's going to be hot tomorrow. It's been hot always. In certain places, if you said, what's the weather going to be like? They'd say, well, it's going to be a blizzard tomorrow. It's always a blizzard, right? We always have blizzards every day. In Bergen, in Norway, it always rains. You know the little joke about the American, don't you? Who stopped a little boy in the street and said, here, Sonny, does it always rain in Bergen? He said, I don't know, sir. I'm only eight. <laughs> now, certain places have that fixed type of you know, of weather. But Britain doesn't. Britain is constantly changing. You know, geographers say about Britain, you know, that we don't have a climate, we only have weather. And that's true. You don't know what the weather's going to be like tomorrow. You can make a guess and you'll be wrong. Now, we live in this constant state of change. So when we say that God never changes, what we're saying is that the change that is commonplace to us is totally alien to God. He never changes. God never varies. Amazing thing. He's never evolved. He's never grown. He's never got smaller. God's always been God and he's never changed. Oh, it, it's quite logical when you think of it. You see, most change, certainly in the human life, occurs either for the better or the worse, doesn't it? I mean, if you're moving house, it's because either you've got richer so you can afford a better house, or you've got poorer so you should move into a smaller one to get the money. But it normally changes for the better or the worse. Now, with that in mind, have a think about God. God is perfect. Now, if he's perfect, he can't change for the better. Because he's already perfect. He is the height of that which is good. So he can't change for the better. And being perfect, he wouldn't change for the worse. So you're absolutely locked into this fact that we have a God who is immutable. He never, never changes. What God is today, he always has been, and he always will be. That's a characteristic. Oh, it's not like us at all. I just wish somewhere in the Bible I could find that verse that says, Roger Price, the same today, yesterday, and forever. You know, yesterday, today, and forever. I wish I could find it. It's not there. Oh, it's such a shame. I wish I could find it about you people. You know, oh, well, so-and-so, yes, they're the same yesterday, today, and forever, but you don't find it at all. In fact, the Bible says this about humanity, that it's, it's shifting so much, it's rather like a rough sea. We in English use the phrase, the seething mass of humanity, don't we? The seething, surging mass that's always changing. And the Bible says, yes, that's right, just like the sea. Let's begin at that point, shall we, and looking at our Bibles. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 57. Isaiah 57, and this is the true picture of humanity. In Isaiah 57, a very well-known verse indeed, verse 20, but let's read verse 19 first. 
Here it is. I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him that is far off and to him that is near, saith the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the troubled sea. Fallen man is like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. And fallen humanity has no peace. It's constantly on the change. Now compare, compare that with the statement made about God where God is described as a rock. That's what you've got to compare. And those of you who know the coast at all will know this. The rock seems never to change. It's always there. There may be a storm at sea, but the rock's there. It may be calm, but the rock's there. Bogner rocks, you know, have always fascinated me. You've got this line of rocks. No one knows where they came from. It's a, a complete mystery to the geologist. But they've always been there. And the fishermen have always had to watch out for them. Now, the sea may come and go, may have different moods, but the rock is just there. And our God is described as a rock. He is, immov he is um, immutable. He doesn't change. He sticks out just like a rock in this seething mass. Let's go to Deuteronomy and chapter 32. And here is an early description of him as a rock. And this should give you great comfort in your heart. I'm going to read from verse 3. Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 3, comparing this with the seething mass of humanity. Verse 3, Because I will publish the name of the Lord, ascribe ye greatness unto our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. They have corrupted themselves. And you see the comparison that's made. Now here's our God, a rock. And you know, when trouble hits, what do you need? You need a rock. When there are problems around, you need a rock, and our God is the rock that you need. This is why David spoke about him in these terms. Uh, I think we'll have a look at it in 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel 22, David says of his God that he answered his prayer. And beginning verse 1, this is the song that he wrote. 2 Samuel 22 and verse 1. And David spake unto the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord had delivered him out of the hand of all his enemies and out of the hand of Saul. And he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, the God of my rock, or God is my rock, as it should be. In him will I trust. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my high tower and my refuge, my saviour. Thou savest me from violence. Isn't that a lovely thing? That's what a rock is, total security. And you can hide in the cleft in the rock and be safe from all the storm that comes lashing. I will call on the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from mine enemies. And here is the analogy, continue, verse 5, when the waves of death compass me. 
There it is, the waves of death flowing in. The floods of ungodly men made me afraid. The sorrows of hell compassed me about. The snares of death prevented me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord, cried to my God, and he did hear my voice out of his holy temple, and my cry did enter into his ears. He goes on saying, he came down. Isn't that lovely? And the rock arrived on the scene. And here is David wondering, what am I going to do? Everything's so unstable, I don't know where to turn. And suddenly the rock stands in the midst. And this is the picture that Jesus has in his mind when he says the wise man builds his house upon a rock. Right? The foolish man builds his house on shifting sand. And that is what the Lord is saying. There's only one rock and it is our God. Jesus is called the rock. He's the anchor for our soul. And any person who builds their life around him is absolutely solid and firm no matter what comes. But those who build on anything else, they're on absolute shifting sands. If you've ever heard the sea moving the sand about, that groaning, that um, sort of creaking sound as the rocks run together, that is what anything else save our God is like. And anyone who's building, you know, on their good works or on something they can achieve, or hoping in this, or hoping in that. It's all shifting sand. But when you build on the rock, who is our God, you can have absolute confidence. Now that's wonderful. He is rock-like. And when you're talking of him as the rock, you're talking about his immutability. The fact that he never, ever, ever changes. Do you know the same God that David called on, and he said he delivered me, is the same God you've got to call on. And in the tribulation, it's going to be the same God. And in the millennium, the same God. And we're going to live with this God forever and forever. And do you know he's going to be the same God that we worship tonight? He won't have altered, not one iota. Oh, it's wonderful. Well, there's an analogy. But where does the Bible actually say that God is immutable? Now, I want to have a look at three scriptures that say it. And two in the Old Testament and one in the New. So let's begin in Psalms, first of all. Psalm 102. Psalm 102. And right at the end of this psalm, verse 24, I'm going to begin. Psalm 102 and verse 24. I said... O my God, take me not away in the midst of my days. Thy years are throughout all generations. That's the first statement. God's always been. Of old, thou hast laid the foundation of the earth. Wonderful. And I happen to know the builder of this planet, and I'll tell you, it's going to last as long as he needs it. Marvelous. And the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish. All the black holes are going to fill in. All the supernovas are going to become super-duper-novas. They're all going to pass away. But thou shalt endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment. As a vesture shalt thou change them. They shall be changed, but thou art the same. And thy years shall have no end. The children of thy servants shall continue, and their seed shall be established before thee. Now, first of all, God will have no end. He's always the same. He doesn't change. And notice how he goes on. And the the seed that you've established will also be continued. Why? Because God's behind the seed. He's backing that godly seed. 
And so do you see, as long as God lasts, they will last together. It's a wonderful statement. Now there's one. The other one in the Old Testament is very well known. It's right at the end of the Old Testament, just before the book of Matthew, which begins the New Testament. In the book of Malachi, and chapter 3, my favorite part of the Messiah is taken from Malachi chapter 3. Who may abide the day of his coming? He is like a refiner's fire. I love it. And the whole passage here, from 1 down to verse 5, deals with God's judgment, that he's coming to refine the sons of Levi. But it ends in verse 6. Look what it says. For I am the Lord. I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. And that's a lovely statement, incidentally, about the future of Israel. Here... He is saying this, that he's always had a plan for Israel, and because he never changes, Israel's always got a future as far as he is concerned, and because he never changes, you sons of Jacob, you are not going to be consumed. Oh, it is true that the unbelievers will be rooted out. There will be a purging, but so that the saved Jews will come through. It depends on God's character, and God's character here is immutable. He never changes. Lovely. Some people think, you know, in these days, that God made a mistake with the Jews. That one day he saw his son dead on the cross, and he, he looked down, he saw the Romans guilty, but the Jews guilty of it, and that God sort of said, oh dear, I've made a mistake. Oh dear, I shouldn't have done this, and it's a most dreadful mistake. You know, I should have chosen the British after all. <laughs> Some people act in that type of way. Oh well, I'll have to start again, so what shall I know? I'll bring the church into being. That's an, a changeable God. That's not right at all. That would make God mutable, changeable. No, no. Do you know God always had his plan and his purpose, and it encompasses the Jews and the church. Both of them are in God's plan. Very important. God has never made a mistake. He knows the way he's going to go. He's never had to change one iota or one detail of it. He's absolutely perfect in this way. He is immutable, so his plan goes marching on. There are two Old Testament ones. Now let's go to the book of James and see one which illustrates it from astronomy. This is an astronomical illustration. Really good, this one. <clears throat> and beginning verse 17. Chapter 1, sorry, verse 17. James, chapter 1, verse 17. Let me just read it. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Now, there's the statement. It's quite a complicated little verse. First of all, we've got to ask, what do we mean by the Father of lights? Now, this is a reference back to Genesis chapter 1, where do you remember on the fourth day of creation, God said, let there be lights in the firmament. And he created the sun and the moon and the stars and the planets on day number four in the creation, after the vegetable matter, by the way, was created. 
There are some people around who say, well, uh, Genesis is just picture language, and all it does is give the course of evolution. Oh, no, it doesn't, you know, because evolution begins with the sun, right? And the sun comes before everything. They say that all life came from the sun. But in the book of Genesis, the sun comes on day number four. Now, why? I'll tell you why. Because God's the source of life, and it's written deliberately. God deliberately left the sun till the grass is older than the sun. Isn't that marvelous? God is the one who sustains. And the day is coming, by the way, when the sun and all the universe are going to be folded up like a napkin, as it says in Peter. Right? Folded up like an old napkin. The sun will no longer exist, but do you know there's still life? Why? Because our God is the source of life. Now, when it says the Father of lights, he's talking about the planets here. He's talking about the stars, the sun, the moon, and all the planets. There it is. The Father of lights now. Having said that, that he's the creator of all that is in the universe, it then says he may have created it, but he's not like it. Because it goes on to say, the father of lights, but with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. And have you noticed from the, the earth, everything seems to change in the universe? Have you noticed that? There are phases of the moon. Sometimes you go out and the moon looks like a fingernail. You see, a baby's fingernail. Other times, it's this big, full face, and you can see the Atora suet packet with the spoon going in its mouth, and there it is. The moon's always changing. It goes through these phases. Sometimes, a particular star is in this part of the sky, and gradually, as the year goes past, you know all the stars migrate across the, the sky, as far as we are concerned. And that's why you get these charts in the Daily Telegraph and other things showing you where the stars are tonight. You see, they change. Sometimes a star comes up above the horizon and then disappears over the horizon again, pops off down south, you see? They're constantly changing. The planets do the same. Only a little, a few weeks ago, if you were up at four o'clock in the morning, you could have seen all the planets in a row, right? You could see Mercury, Venus, then Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus. I'm not sure about Neptune, Neptune and Pluto, but you could certainly have seen all those major planets along in a road just above the horizon, moving across. Now that is a very rare event because, you see, they're all off again now, and we are continuing our way. Everything goes through phases. There's a constant changeability in the creation. Ah, but the creator of the universe isn't like his creation. With him, there's no variableness. He's always the same. Neither is there, as it's put here, um, any shadow of turning. And that is actually the phrase used of an eclipse of the sun or the moon. God never eclipses. Never. He's always the same. Immutable to the end. There is no end with God. So immutable. Wonderful. Now there it is. And this is the rock of our salvation who constantly is the same. Incidentally, if this weren't true, I couldn't have done this series of tapes. Couldn't have done them. I mean, when I say God is sovereign, and God is holy, and God is omnipresent, and God is omniscient, right, and omnipotent, and when I say he's eternal and all the other things, I am assuming immutability. That's why we produce the tapes, assuming that when those tapes go out, that's still current. Now, if God changed, you see, we might have to do another tape saying, I did those tapes at the end of 1983, the beginning of 1984, and in 1985, God changed. And he used to be love, but he's not love anymore. 
right? And this is a warning to all you people who are trusting in him. <laughs> Immutability, however, says I'll never have to do that. And by the way, he might have changed so fast that by the end of this course, it might not have been true what I said at the beginning of the course. The lovely thing is that, in fact, these tapes are going to wear out before God will wear out, because he'll never wear out. He is immutable, and this character is, is totally fixed. As I've said, what he is today, he was yesterday, and he will be tomorrow, wherever tomorrow comes in history. He's always the same. And this, for the Christian, has the most marvelous uh, blessing associated with it. Because of this, you see, if God ever chose to love you, then he must love you forever. You see that? If there was ever one second when he said, I set my love upon that man there, because he's immutable, his love has always been on that man there, and it always will be on that man over there. If ever he loved me, he loved me forever. Has to be so. And if you're loved tonight, it's because he's loved you from eternity past. You imagine this. Imagine a sin that you've confessed to the Lord. If ever he forgave that sin, it's forgiven forever. God is never, when you get up to heaven, going to say, oh, by the way, what about this? And you say, but I confess that. Yes, well, I've changed my mind. I mean, quite honestly, you didn't live up to my expectations, so I brought out the dossier. It doesn't do that. He doesn't do that at all. He chooses not to remember. Do you remember we dealt with that in omniscience? He chooses that he won't remember. Wonderful. If ever he decided that you were going to be saved, you're going to be saved forever. You have to be, because God's immutable. It's the most lovely thing when you think about it. And yet that's the blessing. But there's also a paradox associated with this. Because God never changes, and I do, I'm the one who constantly has to change to get in relationship with God. I'm the chap that has to change. And some days I have to change a lot, and some days I don't have to change quite as much as I did on other days. But the change has to come from us. And that's why Jesus said to Nicodemus this, unless you be born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. You've got to change to come to me. And in these days where we expect everyone to do everything for us, this is something God will not do for you. It's you that must change to come in line with him. All right, now there is the wonderful attribute of immutability. The problem is... Um, that whereas this is testified to in a lot of places, there are problems associated with it. First of all, it solves a lot of problems, but then it creates one big problem. Let's see that it solves some problems, first of all. Can we just go to Romans chapter um, 11? Romans and chapter 11. And this solves a, a theological problem that I've already covered tonight, the problem of Israel. In this particular chapter, he's talking about the fact that the Jews have been cut off because of their unbelief. So the problem we come to is, well, if God's cut them off, can't he cut me off as well? I mean, if he is capable of cutting his own people off and he's got a covenant with them, he's got a covenant with me, can't he cut me off as well? And here, Paul warns and he says, now you members of the church, remember please, you've been grafted in. You're not the original lot. You've, you're actually a wild plant that has been grafted in. So he says this, don't become high-minded and high and mighty and all proud about it. Oh, the church is everything now. Rather remember from where you've come. 
And then he reminds us of the immutability of God because he says this about the Jews. Verse 29. For the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. Or as it would have it in a modern version, they are irrevocable. If God has ever called the Jews, he's called them forever. Has to be so. Wonderful. In that one statement, that clears up all the theology about Israel. If God's called them, if ever you can admit that God, uh, God's people were the Jews, you have to say they're God's people forever. It's quite as clear as a bell. It really is. After all, this is the God that said to Moses, I am that I am. I am that I am. I will not change. I am and I am. And I stick with that. I am. Wonderful. He set his love on them once. That means he sets his love on them forever. We saw it last, last time when we talked about God is love. What does Jeremiah 31 verse 3 say? I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Well, it has to be, because God's immutable. But he loved you ever. He loves you forever. It has to be so, you see. And so we come through to that. All right, but here's the problem it creates. Well, we, we need a word to see what the problem is. So to find this word, and then it will go click, and you'll say, oh yes, now that is a problem. Let's go to the Old Testament. Let's see the book of Numbers, right? Numbers 23, and we locate the word that we want in this section which is spoken by Balaam. And we sing this as a chorus. Now remember, the king wanted to curse Israel. So he calls this prophet Balaam up, and he says, Balaam, curse Israel, will you? And that gives Balaam a problem. And the problem he expresses in this verse. It's a lovely problem. Verse 19. And here is his problem. You see, his problem is with the character of God. All these people knew who their God was. And th this is staggering, because we live in a day when most Christians don't know who their God really is. Look what he says. Balaam, this is. Balaam would shame the majority of charismatic Christians today. He would shame them. Look at this, verse 19. And by the way, he wasn't a very good chap, right? Verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie. That's his problem. Well, you see, God's not changeable like we are. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the Son of Man that he should repent. There's the word, repent. Repent, you remember, means to change your mind about something. He hath, hath he said it, and shall, it, shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, shall he not make it good? Behold, I have received commandment to bless, and he has blessed. I cannot reverse it. And God's decided to bless Israel. What can I say? They're going to be blessed. They've been out of fellowship for 2,000 years, but I'll tell you this, they're going to be blessed. Oh, yes, it's true, and it's still true today that those who go to curse Israel, they'll be cursed themselves. But those who bless Israel, they'll be blessed. Why? Because God's not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. He has commanded the blessing, and who am I to speak against it? Now, there's a statement. Now, the word we want is this word, repent. And this says God does not repent. It's said in many places in the Bible. Now, our problem is that in other places in the Bible... God is clearly said to repent. And so we do have a little bit of a problem. Let's actually have a look at uh, certain scriptures that say that God repents over certain things, and then you'll see how simple it is. Let's go to the book of Jonah. 
Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. So if you hit any of those books, you're nearly there. Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. Jonah, chapter 3. Now, I've done a tape on this called Jonah. So you should understand this if you've heard that tape. Jonah, chapter 3, and verse 10. And he's looking down at the people of Nineveh who had just repented. I'll talk about it in a minute. And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. Now, hold on. You said God was immutable. Now, he's now repented of something, and he hasn't done what he was going to do. It's a problem, isn't it? Well, yes, it's even more of a problem in another passage, where you actually get contradictory statements in the same chapter. Right, let's have a look at that. In uh, 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel, and chapter 15... I think we'll begin with the verse that says he doesn't repent. And then we'll see the two that says he does in the same chapter. Right, 1 Samuel 15, verse 28 and 29 first. 1 Samuel 15, verse 28, 29. And Samuel said unto him, The Lord hath rent the kingdom of Israel from thee. That's Saul he's talking about. Has rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day, and hath given it to a neighbor of thine that is better than thou. And also the strength of Israel, that's a title of God, will not lie nor repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. Statement of immutability. Trouble is that earlier on in the chapter, in verse 10 and 11, then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel, saying, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king. For he is turned back from following me, and hath not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried unto the Lord all night. So God repented at that point. Later on in the chapter, in verse 35, And Samuel came no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord repented that he had made Saul king over Israel. So God repents at that point. All right, one last scripture which actually gives us the key that solves the whole matter. And that's found in the book of Genesis and chapter 6. The book of Genesis and chapter 6. And I must take people, do a special on Genesis chapter 6 and the angelic infiltration, which is what it's about. We must do that. I think we get requests for it quite frequently, and it's a marvelous chapter. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were fair, and giants were born unto them, and so on. The history of the giants is marvellous. Now, Genesis 6, verse 5 and verse 6. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. There is God repenting, but do you see what's added? And it grieved him at his heart. 
Do you remember earlier on in this course that I said that God often uses things that we can identify with to describe himself? For example, he says, my mouth has spoken it. Your cry has come unto my ears. My, the smell of it's come up to my nostrils, right? We also saw that under the cover of my wings. And do you remember I said that, that these are pictures, anthropomorphisms as I called them then. Listen to that tape and you, you'll have it. They are human descriptions of God. Now actually he doesn't have eyes or ears or a mouth, but we can identify with him using these descriptions. Now the word repent as it's used in these passages is the same. It is something that shows us something that we can identify with in God. And let me tell you what it shows us. That whereas we have a God who is immutable, he is not unmovable. Now that's a very important statement. Our God is immutable, he never changes, but do you know, he responds to us. If I just spoke on immutability, or you read a book about it, you'd imagine that God had the face of Ayatollah Khomeini, just sitting there. You know, so I don't care what happens, or what you say, or what you do, or what you think, my purposes will keep rolling on. A bit like a steamroller without a driver on that's rolling relentlessly down the hill. And you get on your knees and you say, please stop. Splat. The thing can't. <laughs> you see? It just rolls on relentlessly. And immutability can, and often is when it's talked about, is presented like that, that God just keeps going. doesn't matter what happens with you, God's purposes are going to move out. That's how it's talked about. Now, the reason we have here this delicate phraseology that God repented in his heart is to show that God responds, and do you know he's affected by what we do. God weeps and is happy sometimes, right? With sin he weeps. With obedience he's happy. But he responds to us. Now, in the Greeks had two words for the word repent. You know that from the first course of Bible studies. One meant to change your mind about something, to change your direction. The other meant to, to get all emotional. Do you remember metamelamai? Do you remember to get all emotional about something? Now listen, God never changes his direction or his mind, but he does get emotional. And God feels for us. Think of the Jonah passage that we saw. Now, God's immutable rule is this. His immutable rule, and I'll write it up, is this that the godly are blessed. But he also says that the ungodly are judged. That is his immutable rule. That never changes. Now think of uh, Nineveh. Nineveh was ungodly, therefore was under judgment. And God sent Jonah... And he said, Jonah, go and tell them I'm about to judge them. That is my way. I'm going to judge them. Jonah went. He was pleased with the message. He hated the Ninevites. See? He went and said, by the way, folks, you're all going to be judged. God's going to come and he's going to wipe this city out. Good thing to do. And I'm going to sit up there and watch it and enjoy myself. And you know, the people of Nineveh repented. They repented. And they, those who were so ungodly turned to God. There was mass revival. You know this, don't you? You know that Assyria became great because of that revival back then. That's why the empire of Assyria rose at all, and then they became so evil. But it began with the revival under uh, Jonah's ministry. 
Now, what had happened? God then saw godliness, he had to bless. But who's changed? God hasn't changed. His rule is immutable, that he blesses the godly and he curses the ungodly. No, it's the people who changed. And when God looked down, oh, his heart was thrilled. And it says he responded to them. He felt emotional because he thought, I was going to destroy these people and they've turned to me. But you see, he hasn't changed at all, right? His rule keeps moving on. It's the people that have changed and God responds to their change right? But God's purposes roll on. Do you know, God always had David in mind. The Davidic covenant wasn't written when David was born. It was written when creation started. It's always been around, right? He knew that Saul would come and for 40 years be on the throne, and at the end of 40 years, David would be old enough to have the throne. That was his purpose. What what affected him was the depth of sinfulness that was in Saul, that Saul turned against him. He knew it was going to happen, but he was still moved. We have not a high priest, you know, who is not moved by our lives. Isn't it a wonderful thing? But actually, God and God's purposes and God's ways, they're immutable. No, no change. The change is in us. So God, you know, when he sees his people and he saved you, but he sees you going the sinful path, he weeps. He's emotional about it. But when he sees those who are going along the path of destruction turning to him, he rejoices. It's an emotional feeling that is in our God. Now this tells us something. I'm going to say it again. That even though God is immutable, he never changes, he's not unmovable. It's lovely. I think I'll give you an analogy. Imagine the wind blowing from the south and a man on a bicycle. Now, do you see the direction that the man on the bicycle takes determines whether the wind's against him or for him? Doesn't it? Right? If he's cycling towards the south, the wind's against him. If he's cycling towards the north, the wind's behind him. And if he does a U-turn, he'll have the wind against him, then the wind behind him. What's changed? The wind? No. The wind has kept absolutely in the same direction. It's the man that's changed. Right? That's not a good analogy because, of course, the wind doesn't weep when it's against him. Doesn't say, oh, this poor chap on the bicycle. Oh, dear, and I'm against him. Doesn't, and neither if he's behind, just go, we aren't we making good progress? But our God does. Isn't it lovely, you see? That is the immutability of God, and yet his, his heart beating throughout his immutability. It's a lovely thing when you think of it, you see? All right, having said all of that, Now I just want to complete the study the way we've always completed the studies. I want to see that the Father's immutable, the Son's immutable, the Holy Spirit's immutable, because this backs up the tapes on the Trinity. So let's first of all see the immutability of the Father. Hebrews 6, 17. By the way, as I'm speaking, those of you who are fathers, doesn't this ring a bell in your hearts? Right? You have a rule. Well, now look, if you're good, we'll go out this afternoon. But if you're not, well, now that's your fixed rule. What determines it? It's not you changing that determines whether you go out or not. It's the boy's behavior or the girl's behavior that changes it. In Hebrews chapter 6, talking again about the Abrahamic covenant, God's oath to the Jews. And verse 17, this is what it says about the Father. Talking about an oath, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. 
Now there is the immutable counsel of God the Father. God is immutable. The Son, is he immutable? Yes, he is. Hebrews again. Hebrews 13. I've had to fight all Bible study not to mention this verse. Hebrews 13 and verse 8. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the same yesterday and today and forever. There's the immutability of Jesus Christ. What about the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is also immutable. Uh, the verse that I thought of was John 14 and verse 16. John 14, verse 16, where Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit coming. I don't know of a verse that specifically says that the Holy Spirit is uh, immutable. This is the nearest I can get. Verse 16, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. And I think that implies immutability, because the Holy Spirit is always the Holy Spirit, right? And forever he will abide in us once he's come. So that is an immutable fact of the Holy Spirit. So I think that's a verse that shows the immutability of the Holy Spirit. All right, what does it mean to the unbeliever? It's frightening. What it means is that when God says that something will occur, it's going to occur. When God says that the soul that sinneth, it will die, so it will. And God doesn't change. When God says that the wages of sin is death, so they are. And by the way, even Jesus fulfills the rule. For on the cross of Calvary, my sins were put on him, and he died for my sins in my place. The wages of my sin were his death, and in him I receive his eternal life. The most wonderful thing. But ignore Christ, and I'm afraid the wages of sin is death perpetually. And God never changes. That is his judgment upon uh, sin. When God says that there will be eternal hellfire, there will be eternal hellfire. He's not going to, after 2,000 years, say, well, I've changed my mind, and we're going to switch them off. No, it's perpetual from that time on. This is what it means as far as the unbeliever is concerned. God is a God of his word. And when he says something in the past about the future, that future is going to come. And he says there will be a day of judgment and there will be a day of judgment. God is not going to change it. It's coming. The second advent of Christ will occur. It may seem as if it's been a long time of coming, but it's going to happen. Why? Because God has purposed it and God is the God who changeth not. And that's the frightening prospect for the un unbeliever. And the unbeliever, as certainly, as certain is certain, he will encounter the day of judgment. Definitely because it's coming his way. There's only one way to avoid it, and that's by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. For those who believe in him, there is no condemnation, no judgment day. Praise God, you escape. What about the believer? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? Such peace and security. You see, you know whom you have believed in, and you can trust that if you've committed yourself to him and he saved you, that's not going to change. You can trust that he is the one 
who will fulfill his promises to you. If he's ever made you a promise, the promise is forever. You can trust him. You can trust in his love. You can trust that all the things that he said he has done to you in Christ, they will actually be manifested because he is the unchangeable God. But I think there's one other thing that we've got to learn from the immutability of God. And that is this, that as God is unchangeable, so he desires us to become more unchangeable. And I do believe that those who move on with God ought to become more stable. All right, when you're first saved, you can still be the impetuous hothead that you were. When you're first saved, you can still be the moody sort of tyrant that you were. When you're first saved, you can be the up and down, unstable person that you were. But as you move on in God, you should become more stable so that people know who they're meeting when they meet you. If we don't become more stable, we will lose out on the blessing. So I want to end for tonight. Back in Genesis 49, and I want to see the words of Jacob concerning Reuben. You remember Reuben, don't you? Reuben was the firstborn, as far as Jacob was concerned. The firstborn. He therefore had the birthright. Right? He had the double portion coming his way. He had the rulership. He had the priesthood, this man. They were his blessings. But look at this judgment, or rather this character um, assessment that's made of him. Verse 3 and verse 4. Reuben says, Jacob, thou art my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power, unstable as water. There's the most terrible condemnation. You are an unstable man, Reuben. Unstable as water, thou shalt not excel. Because thou wentest up to thy father's bed, then defiled it, defiled it. he went up to my couch. And what he was saying here is that Reuben had no self-control at all. Right? Things built up in him and they had to, to come out. Sometimes they caused him to sin in certain ways. And because of that instability that was in him, he did not excel. And do you know that's why the tribe of Reuben always had the stone of an emerald as their special stone. The emerald is sea green, and it represented the sea and the instability of the sea. Instability will remove blessing. We've got to learn it in our own lives. Instability will sap God's energy in your life. We must seek him for stability, that as he is, so we might be also. The lovely thing about all this is that the emerald green, which represents man's instability, has been turned over on its head, as it were, in God. Because, do you know, in Revelation 4, there's a lovely scene where we see God sitting on the throne and he's surrounded by a rainbow and its colour is emerald green. It's lovely. I think we've just got... No, yes... Let's go to Revelation 4. Just read it very quickly. Revelation 4. Look at this. And uh, verse 3. Revelation 4, verse 3. And he sees a throne, and he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. Now a rainbow always means God's faithful promises. And now it's emerald green. 
And do you know emerald green represents, one, the instability of man, but second, the covenant-keeping qualities of our God. And immutability is green in color. Isn't that marvelous? Praise God. God takes the cursing, turns it into a blessing. I think that's why green is the most relaxing color that there is. I think that's why most of the earth is green. I think that's what it is. As a hallmark, yes, man may have spoilt this, but my covenant's still on this place. My brothers and sisters, I'm so thrilled that God is an immutable God because I can trust him. I know who he is, and I know that he'll be the same tomorrow when I need him. Next time, we lead on quite naturally to the last Bible study in this series when I'll be talking about the veracity of God or to put it simply the fact that God is faithful and true. God bless you all. Father I do thank you for being the unchangeable God. Father I do ask that you give us the stability that we see in you. In the name of Jesus. Amen.